Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. I'm your host, Billy Shore. It's amazing when you realize how central food is to so many things that we care about. It affects our health. We see kids with nutritionally related problems, many of them overweight even though they're undernourished. It affects our ability to learn. She had to make sure she had lunch in the classroom because at the end of the day, that was going to be all she got. Food security affects our strength as a nation. Within arm's reach are people who are hungry, and there is a anxiety and a stigma attached to that. I'm here in New York with Seamus Mullen and Sam Cass. Welcome, guys. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks. Good to see you. I'm really excited to have this conversation because although you guys have had different paths, and I'm going to ask each of you to describe yours a little bit, um, there's some things that you've both been very passionate about in terms of healthy eating and in terms of the way we think about the relationship between food, health, in Sam's case, even our planet and the the environmental impact of food. But uh, first, let me tell folks a little bit about who you are. Seamus, you've got a restaurant here in New York called Tertulia. Uh, You've also been on the Food Network, which is the way a lot of people will know you. Um, And you've got a book called Hero Food, which has been out for a while. Um, And you and I know each other because we've uh, been able to ride together. You've been one of the star and lead riders in our chef cycle program. So um, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, And Sam, we met, I think, almost as soon as you came to Washington as the white assistant White House chef and the first really food policy advisor that the White House has ever had. Um, and your story is in some ways kind of a Cinderella story coming <laughs> to Washington and you know being in the, in the White House and as close as you were to uh, President Obama and the First Lady and the impact that you were able to have on our food policy. So thank you. It's great to be here. I had a good run. Seamus, tell us a little bit about um, your path. You're a little bit of a um, medical miracle <laughs> in some ways. Uh, yeah. And it's had a big impact on the way you think about food. It definitely has. I, you know, I, I I am a bit of a medical miracle, but I'm also not at all. I think that what I've my, the path that I've gone on is, is totally replicable for many, many, many people. Um, I, was, uh, I was really healthy for a long time. And then the life of a chef is not necessarily the healthiest life often, um, particularly 20 years ago. <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> working 90 hours a week and not you know, taking care of yourselves. We're really good at taking care of other people, but not so good at looking after ourselves. And I got to a point where, where everything just kind of caught up with me. Um, and I got really, really ill. I wasn't feeling well all the time. I didn't really know what was happening. And it turns out that I was suffering from an autoimmune disease from rheumatoid arthritis, which is theoretically an incurable autoimmune disease. And I went down the path of traditional Western medicine of the allopathic treatment for the disease for many years. And I just kind of went from sick to sicker to sicker to sicker. One of the challenges with um, the way we treat autoimmune disease is that we often particularly with progressive diseases like, uh, like Crohn's or, or um, rheumatoid arthritis, the symptoms can become so severe that they can cause very, very uh, significant long-term damage, whether it's to your, to your, to your um, digestive system or to your joints, to the point where the joints need to be replaced or, or, or um, repaired. So the, the drugs that we often use to treat that are immunosuppressants. They target specific um, inflammatory cytokines, inflammatory proteins within the body, and suppress them. The, the problem is, is that they also have a general suppressive uh, effect on the entire immune system. So they make you much more susceptible to illness. Um, and in, in, in the most severe case with me, I developed um, bacterial meningitis that nearly killed me. 
so I had got an infection in my brain that took my my temperature to 106 degrees, which was horrific. I, I know now that that was actually what was going on is that my immune system was was totally out of whack because my my guts were out of whack, my my microbiome, my bacteria was out of whack, and that was what was driving it. And through uh, over permeability in my gut, I was getting bacteria going into my bloodstream. And being on immunosuppressants um, kept my body from being able to to counteract that. Um, so that was one of the side effects. Another side effect that was pretty horrific was a grand mal seizure that lasted for 11 minutes. Um, so I, yeah, it was too, I was on a, a neurological drug for um, for neuropathy for neurological pain, and um, that in conjunction with pain medication that I was prescribed um, caused a, a, a grand mal seizures. Uh, I never really was able to get to what the root cause of, of was making me ill um, until I met a, a doctor who practices functional medicine, and his approach is really is, is interesting. And when I asked him to describe how he looked at disease and illness, he said, well, it's like a tree. If a tree has brown leaves, you don't paint the leaves green. You look at the root system and the soil. And that was a pretty remarkable moment for me because I really started to think about, okay, what goes into making a body healthier? What goes into making a body ill? What, what are the factors that create an environment in which the body can be either healthy or ill? And uh, so we were able to really address how I was looking at my own health. And, and it was a, a kind of a, a, a really important moment to me when I realized that I, I didn't have to be a patient. I didn't have to be a sick person. I could actually take control of my own health. There were things that I could do. Um, and food was you know, a tool that I had at my disposal. Um, and so through it, a long journey, it wasn't overnight, I was able to slowly start to re reverse the, the, the symptoms of the disease that I was living with to a point where we were able to make the disease completely go away. Um, and that really changed the way I, I thought about illness, particularly modern illnesses like type 2 diabetes and Alzheimer's and, and, and a lot of autoimmune diseases, that if we can actually create an environment in which uh, that's very hostile for disease to take hold, and by doing that I mean by creating a body that's as healthy as it can be, um, we're very, very unlikely to develop really, really advanced um, diseases like advanced modern diseases like type 2 diabetes, if we can just create uh, health, health and wellness from the beginning. And that's where, you know, the old adage, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of, of, of medicine. And it's really true. So Seamus, I want to come back to how that's impacted your work as a chef and how you think about uh, what you do. But Sam, I also want to get you into this conversation because you've spent uh, what for most people would be, a, it's really a once in a lifetime opportunity to affect the food policy in this country and particularly to focus on the impact of food on the health of young kids. Um, I don't know a lot about your backstory. I know that you were uh, a personal chef to the Obama family when uh, Obama was senator, when President Obama was Senator Obama. Uh, tell us a little bit about even how that came about and just your kind of path to becoming a chef, and then we'll get into the White House work. Um, yeah, so, um, well, originally I was trying to be a professional baseball player. That was my lifelong dream uh, and was pursuing it pretty aggressively. Um, ended up going to New York, Chicago, where I, my last semester, I went abroad to Vienna and kind of very randomly, I loved food and was interested in it, but had no vision of being a chef and sort of got my way into this Michelin star restaurant and ended up staying there for about a year and a half. Working at a Michelin star restaurant. Yeah. And as literally a, as what, as a food. pastry chef or a sous chef? Or? Uh, I, I came in as this kid off the street who knew nothing, but was interested and the chef and sous chef really took me in kind of as, as family. 
Um, and so I just started showing up every day and working for free. This is like a pattern in your life. The Obamas did the same thing, <laughs> yeah, right? Why do you keep getting is, adopted? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I got a lot of luck, I guess. Uh, my cousin, in fact, has been writing a book for many years titled Lucky Me. This is sort of his name for my life. Uh, but anyways, I, I, got, I got into this restaurant and just started working for free and ended up staying there for a year and a half uh, illegally. I actually ended up getting run out of town by the authorities. But they took me in and sort of trained me and paid me in knowledge and food um, and shelter. But I, got, I, didn't, I didn't make any money. Um, and they just sort of trained me on every station. And the way I really got on to the whole issue of eating. There's a day where the chef asked me to make this sauce for a foie gras dish, a rhubarb sauce. And he said, you know, I'm going to clean it up. Uh, but he told me to put in a ton of butter. And so I put in a ton of butter. He said, no, no, no. I said, put in a lot of butter. So then I was like, whoa, that's a lot of butter. So I put in another heaping thing of butter. And he said, came up to me very angry. He said, you know, if the guest walks out of this restaurant and drops out of heart attack. It's not my fault. It's not my problem. The guest asked me to make food that tastes good. And he was totally right. Um, and it really just sh- just rocked my world. And so from a very early age of being trained, I started asking the questions of what were the implications of what we were feeding our guests on their well-being. And once you ask that question, it takes you down a long path of discovery. And then you ask the basic question of, well, what's the impact on the people who are producing the food and the land that it comes from? And once you ask that basic question, away I went. Um, So I pretty early on put down cookbooks and started reading policy books and history of agriculture books and all these, you know, very different path. Um, And then came back to Chicago after many years of sort of cooking and traveling around the world uh, right after the campaign started and got kind of randomly reconnected with the Obamas. And, you know, there was no staff, really. It was like grandma and the first family. And the kids were young, and the first lady was starting to have to campaign and just really needed some help and was struggling with you know, how to put good food on the table for her kids. Um, even as a well-educated, professional mom, um, it was hard. And so began as a very personal thing for her. It was yeah. just her kids. It was her kids. How are they going to eat well during this campaign, this turbulent period in their yeah. lives? And, and so I started helping, and she immediately saw the impact. I mean, the, the pediatrician had sort of warned her, like, you should be careful. Like, there's some numbers that are concerning. And, you know, we eat what we see, and um, our environments really shape what, what the decisions are we're going to make. And if we're constantly having to, like, fight ourselves and, and um, you know, rely on willpower, uh, we're going to lose every time. And so, um, and so it was really just setting the house up for better choices, and cooking food that was tasty. And and then, you know, like First Lady talks about her favorite food is French fries. You know, I can't resist a, a buffalo chicken wing when I see it. You know, I just, you just can't be looking at those every day. If you have, if I, if I had wings and she had fries in front of her every single day, you're going to end up eating that. Yeah. And so the key is like, you know, eat those every once in a while, have fun, enjoy your life. Um, but you just can't, that can't be the basis of, of your meal. And so, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables, if any grains were whole grains, like within three months, the pediatrician was like, what the heck did you do? And I think that really, you know, uh, showed her the power. It's very similar to Mr. story about the power of what, you know, food can do. And, and she was already very concerned about the well-being of kids generally. I mean, she's the best mom that you can ever see in action. She's just amazing. Um, and, and we started, you know, dreaming about what we could do uh, to help families raise healthier kids, but he was 30 points down. So, you know, we would laugh at ourselves for our dreams. Uh, 
but hey, everybody ended up pulling it off, and then we got to work. Seamus, how did you end up becoming a chef? So I, I grew up in Vermont, and I had um, a pretty influential grandmother who uh, was just an amazing woman. And she, she when, in the 1930s, she went to the, she was from England, and she went to uh, the Cordon Bleu in, in, in Paris and uh, actually stayed with the Sabatier family from the, the Knife family. And um, so she was, she always had a really good palate and was interested in food. And, and as a kid, I loved hanging around the kitchen with her. And she was kind of my primary caregiver, so she taught me a lot about cooking. And then as I got older into high school and into college, I, uh, I always cooked as my, my, um, my summer job in r- local restaurants. And then I went away to Spain in college. Um, actually went in high school as well. I, had a, uh, I spent a year in Spain in high school, and my host mother was a terrific cook. And uh, I was 16, I think, when I got there, um, maybe 17. And it was the most extraordinary experience for me to coming from Vermont, which is obviously a landlocked state, where I did have, I had wonderful food growing up. We had, we grew, I grew up on a farm and we had amazing produce, but my exposure to seafood was pretty minimal. And suddenly I saw fish with heads on and squid and with tentacles and octopus and, and prawns. I mean, I, I had this moment, probably the second day I was there, she made paella and we had prawns. And I remember seeing this prawn on top of the paella and it had eyeballs on it and watching my host dad rip the head off suck on the head, watching one of the eyeballs fly across onto the onto the paella, and then my host mother kind of not even seeing the eyeball fly onto the paella, then scooped up the rice, put, put the rice in her plate and started eating it. And I'm like, oh my God, she just ate the eyeball, <laughs> thinking it was the most grotesque thing in the world. But then at the same time, I was also really curious that this is, it was so foreign and so exotic to me. Even the notion of, of fish really was exotic to me. Um, so her kitchen always just, it smelled like cooking all the time. And sometimes the smells of cooking are not great smells. Like when you're making uh, you're making chicken stock, the smell of like the bones boiling is not a great smell. Or um, I don't know, the, there are a lot of like elements of cooking that as it goes through the stages of cooking, so t- there, was, there were all these smells that to me were totally different. Um, but then there were these incredible aromas. And, and I was always amazed the kitchen was so small in our little apartment. The amount of food that she produced every day and we ate every day as a family. They had they had three kids that were their own kids. Um, so we ate every day as a family at two o'clock in the afternoon. The kids came home from school. We all sat down. We had a big lunch together. Um, we always started with salad, and there was a big salad bowl in the middle of the table, and everyone just ate out of the salad bowl. And that was a totally different experience for me. And then we'd have paella all the time, and the paella pan went down in the middle of the table, and we just ate out of the paella pan. And it was really, it was a round table. Everything we ate out of was round, and we sat around in a round. And it was really the sense of community that even though I had grown up always eating around a table with my family, um, it was, this was something that was never missed. Every day we ate together. Uh, and and I realized how important that was, that that notion of really coming together as a family or as a community, it was incredibly important. And then um, after college, I didn't really know what to do, and the only skill set that I had, I, I, uh, I studied Spanish literature, which really qualifies you to work in a restaurant. <laughs> That's about it. Um, so the only real hard skill I had was cooking, and I, I didn't even think of it. I was a little actually, I was kind of down on myself when I, was working in a restaurant cooking after college, thinking that here I had, you know, had this education and uh, I had invested a lot of money and I should be should be doing something else. 
Um, and again, my grandmother came to me and said, hey, do you, you're, you're happiest when you cook, you should really cook. And it was, it was amazing. It was, I was already cooking, but I, I wasn't thinking of it as a career. I just thought of it as something I was doing to be able to pay my rent. And so my head and my heart, I wasn't really into it. Um, I enjoyed cooking at home and cooking for friends much more than I did actually professionally cooking. But that's when I had this moment of realizing, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to really do it. Uh, and I eventually ended up going, just like Sam, I went to Europe and worked for free uh, until I eventually got a job working there and stayed and then came back to the States and just tried to work with, with really good chefs and, and do what I could to, to progress. So I, I kind of I fell into it to a degree, um, but then discovered it was something I really enjoyed. There's something about um, also what you're saying, Sam, really resonated with me, the notion of, of thinking about your, the chef, your chef who said, I don't care, it's not my fault if they, if they drop out of here, if they fall out of here and drop dead of a heart attack, realizing that actually we do have a responsibility as, as cooks and as chefs to, um, to, to, to provide for the people. Where what we do is really, a, there's a, and there isn't a good word in English, but in Spanish there's this great verb, alimentar, which means to, to it's almost like nourishing, to the food that you give somebody else. How um, do you say it again? Alimentar. Alimentar. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it, this, this idea that we kind of have a bit of a responsibility that we're, we're, we're providing for other people. You know, you have a bit of a, in a restaurant, you have a bully pulpit, really. Um, and you can decide what to do with it. And, and there was something to me that I think, certainly as I went through my journey um, and, and got healthier and started to really understand the impact that food has on not only, I mean, I sort of had an abstract idea about the impact food had on our health, and I had an abstract idea about uh, the, the impact food had on, on our environment. And, and, um, but I didn't, really, I didn't really think of it as a responsibility. Uh, and as I, as I got healthier, it really became a responsibility for me. One of our guests on this show was uh, Bill Telepan, who mm -hmm. was telling this very compelling story about how one of his children had some special nutritional needs. And as he started to cook for his child, he realized he was cooking for a child in a way that was completely different than the way he was cooking for his, his customers. And, yeah. he, and he needed to change that. Like, why wouldn't you want your, your customers and your guests at your restaurant to be as healthy? Sam, I mean, in a very similar way, you took this personal experience you were describing with the Obamas in terms of them wanting their own kids to eat healthy to the policy level once you got to the White House. So how did it, it was probably almost natural for you obviously to go to the White House with the Obamas, but how did you end up becoming food policy advisor in addition to chef? Um, well, this was, I actually came back from Europe uh, with the uh, intent of organizing chefs around food policy. What the policy was, I wasn't sure yet, uh, um, but that was what I wanted to do. So I kind of could not have been in a better place. And, you know, so we started thinking about, okay, if we wanted to have a conversation with the nation around the food we were giving our kids and feeding our families, what would we do? How would that look like? And so the first thing we decided to do back in Chicago early on was to, to plant a garden um, and kind of take the temperature of the nation. And um, if that went well, we knew we would want to do a really big, you know, child health initiative. Um, one of the things that you did to promote healthy food at the White House that I was fortunate to get invited to, thanks to you, was uh, what you called a steak dinner for kids, yeah. uh, which was really special. And I think it was something that, that the time that I went, I, uh, the president actually came by, but it's usually, I think it was usually the first lady's thing. But talk about that because this had kids from all over the country competing to develop healthy dishes that taste good. Yeah. So it, it was my favorite day of the year, every year. Um, so basically we held a nationwide competition for kids eight to 12 and we picked one winner, uh, a year as partnered with Epicurious, um, one winner a year from every state. 
and and so they would narrow it down to two from every state, and then we'd have to do a tasting and a judging. So we would be tasting about 110 dishes at one time. Uh, and DC Central how, Kitchen. How old were wow. these kids? Eight, eight to, to twelve. Eight That's to twelve. Incredible. So, so, but DC Central Kitchen <clears throat> would make these kids dishes. So, uh-huh. 110 different meals that we put together. I mean, it was like tables were like down this long hall. I mean, it was the craziest thing on all levels that I've ever had to do. But then we pick a winner, and um, the kids would come to the White House to the East Room, right? They would be treated as a, any state dinner guest. Yes, you know, wow, it was amazing. So they come all dressed up. They get when they enter, you get announced in front of this big press pool. They'd say now from Delaware, and the kids come in and they get their pictures taken by the press, and then they go upstairs for a little like cocktail reception, and they'd, we'd have all these little like vegetable <laughs> drinks and stuff, and then they'd be mingling around. The butlers would be serving them. They go into the to the state dining room, full White House china, butlers, like the full treatment. Uh, the first day would speak. The president came every year. Um, and uh, and then, like, full entertainment. Like, we'd have the Lion King one year and, you know. But what it, what it, the point of it was to really make these kids out to be heroes. So every time they would go back to their communities, I mean, they would tons of local press in their schools they would be like stars and why because they cooked a healthy dish and it's the foundation of all of this is our culture and i think we focus a lot on policy we focus a lot on on various pieces food is the deepest expression of our culture it's it's who we are it's how we understand ourselves it's how we understand who we're not and if we want to really change this we have to change our cultural values when it comes to what we eat um, and it's not about health food, right, at all. And just as, but it's about good food. And what, what, do we, what do we mean by that? Sam, at the state dinner for kids that I was at, um, the president came out and spent about a half hour, was very relaxed and kind of joking. You've probably seen this a lot of, a lot of times. But uh, that night when I went home to watch the news, I can't remember specifically what it was, but the, the news report had been that he'd been kind of in the situation room for almost two hours that day dealing with some mm-hmm. terrorist incident that we didn't even know about yet. Yeah. Uh, he seems to have this just remarkable ability to stay composed and do the various aspects of the job, and you must have seen that up close over and over again. Yeah, I, I, it's the thing that I um, I can't explain, like the moon, the stars, and the sun, and existence, and I cannot explain his stability, his calm, uh, no matter how stressful. Uh, how great things are or how terrible things were, the pressure that was on him every single day, he was always steady. And like, and in, cl- in like intimate moments behind closed doors, there was no, that wasn't an act. That's just how he is. On stage life and backstage life, the you know, same. We would be hanging out after dinner for hours, same way. And um, I, I can't explain it to you. I really can't explain it to you. It was uh, reported recently that, um, maybe a month or so ago, that he was so disciplined that... He only ate exactly eight almonds uh, yeah, so wh- I, that, for a that, snack okay. every night. And, I'm, and I want to know <laughs> so, if there was some guilty pleasure beyond that that so, you, you could well, share with Seamus and I. We need to address that because that <laughs> statement came that from came me. That came from you. I, and it I, was total bullshit. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to say that, but that's just what it you was. You can say anything on this show. All right, good. Uh, well, don't, don't, don't tell that to us. <laughs> that could get you in trouble. Um, no, so I was making a joke about how we're – it's a joke that we would make about him just to talk about how disciplined he is. Because somebody was asking me, what's the late night snack? It's like, there's a joke that his late night snack would be eight almonds. That's how disciplined he is. Not that he only eats eight almonds. 
for the love of God. He's a very easygoing, like relaxed dude. He's not some weird anal guy. And so, anyways, well, so I, I tried it. it was a, After I read it, I tried it. Yeah, once see, that's and the it problem. Didn't, it didn't it's like last the, media, one night. the media, and then the dude who wrote it, he, he's not a bad guy. He like doubled down on the story. It's like, anyways, <laughs> so you, you just pushed a button right there. No, but he, there are no, but at, but the point does remain that there are no like weird late night indulgence. I mean, he, his routine, you know, he after dinner we'd hang out for a while, relax a little bit, and then he'd take a stack of, you know, we play a little pool, and then. You take a stack, you know, like a two foot tall stack of, of of documents, and go upstairs and read them till like one, two in the morning. Every briefing, every decision memo, they're all really serious. This is not like easy reading at night. Uh, this is life and death stuff, and he'd be prepared for the next day at work. It's hard to imagine doing it without extensive daily reading. I don't physically, I just don't know how that would, everybody's different, right? But it's very hard to understand how you could uh, know the nuance and complexities of the decisions, the stakes of the decisions. Mo oftentimes, the thing about people you don't realize about being president, you have two terrible or three terrible options. They're all horrible, and you got to figure out what to do. And that means really understanding the nuance and trying to game out, okay, what if I do this, what's going to happen? And billions of people's lives are affected by what the President of the United States does. And, um, and so I, you know, maybe there's a different model, but it's hard to know how you do it without reading for hours and hours every day. Um, we've been talking a lot about the connection between food and health. Uh, we haven't talked specifically about fitness mm -hmm. um, and Seamus that's another part of what's become your lifestyle uh, you Seamus and you Sam have both been involved with share our strength in a variety of ways uh, doing almost everything we've asked you to do Sam inspiring so many of our supporters on numerous occasions when he's been asked to speak and bringing us to the White House to talk about policy uh, and Seamus you involved as a share our strength volunteer and most recently uh, as a writer of, in chef cycle so I want you to tell us a little bit about what that was like, and uh, because both of you have been involved with fitness, of course, the First Lady's Let's Move program, Sam, was something that you were intimately involved in, and and I, I tipped off Sam that part of our secret agenda here is to recruit him to <laughs> we, ride we, with we us. We got to get him on. So, so tell us about <laughs> I Chef told Cycle. Him I've got an extra and, bike for him. <laughs> tell us about Chef, Chef Cycle. Tell us why Sam should ride. Okay. Well, um, first and foremost, I think that you know nutrition is is hugely important, but it's it's only part of the puzzle, and uh, there there's um, there's really I, I always think of these three pillars of of, of health that, that Gandhi kind of outlined, which were, were eat, move, and sleep. And those those elements are so important. If you can if you don't have them all in balance, then there's really there's there's something missing in in, in your life. And uh, and I think it's it's really it's it's sad to see so many schools in public schools that have cut um, uh, physical ed phys ed pro programs simply because they don't have the budget for it, they don't have the ability for it, um, or or the facilities for it. And it's really important to get kids moving. Uh, I was really lucky. I grew up in Vermont and in the country, and I, I got to ride a bike around all the time. And that was sort of my first passion. And I ended up racing bikes pretty seriously in, at the, the end of high school and college and after college. And um, and then I went on to do other things and kind of disconnected from the bicycle. Um, but I came back to it when I started to get healthy again. 
And uh, about five or six years ago, I started writing pretty seriously again. And and now I've realized there's just this wonderful relationship between the bicycle and, and food. And a lot of other chefs I know have kind of gravitated towards biking. And it's it's a really interesting culture. And I love it. I mean, being on a bicycle just is, is like being a kid. It really is. But it's, you know, it's one of those things that if you you go out and you ride 100 miles and the next day you ride 100 miles and the next day you ride 100 miles and it seems insurmountable. This was sounding great until that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Billy did it. You can do it. There you go. Right? I want to thank you both for taking the time today. Sam Cass, former White House chef, Seamus Mullins. Tell us, just before we wrap up, tell us each what's next for you. I know, Sam, you're involved with companies that are thinking about the connection of food and the environment. Yeah, I'm working with a lot of startups uh, who are working on health and climate change, sustainability and transparency. And I'm also part of a fund called Acre that's investing in that space, really trying to seed the future. Working on a book um, and, you know, a few other things. A book... God, can't wait for that book to be done. Do <laughs> you know what it's going to be called? Uh, not yet. We're working on the title. Okay. Okay. Seamus, how about you? I just, I finished, I just finished my book. Yeah. You, so you, I know that. I, I know your that. Next really. book, your next you book. Yeah. So your first book was Hero Food. Yeah. I just finished And what's my, the next book? It's called Real Food Heals. Okay. Nice. Um, and uh, so we just finished it. Um, I've maybe got a few more words to write, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's pretty much done. Um, and it's coming out this summer. So that's been that's been a pretty major project. It's a really good feeling having it done. Yeah. Thank you both, Sam Cass, Seamus Mullins. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. The Share Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.